0: And as we're uh, getting settled in here, I wonder if somebody would volunteer to open us in prayer. There's somebody who would uh, open us in prayer. All right, we're going to pray together, and uh, Nathan's going to lead us. So let's pray. Thank you. Amen. Anybody need a handout? Anybody not get the outline? Okay. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Appreciate your help with that. Uh, We're continuing to talk about disciple-making and the idea that uh, we're helping others to learn and live the word. We're looking at Matthew chapter 28 today, and I'm calling this Disciple-Making 101. These are the words of Jesus just before he ascended to heaven. So we would say the timing of them carries a lot of weight, makes them significance. Uh, The wording is is big, it's uh, grand, It's, it's instructive. So this is the assignment he gave the disciples to carry out, but it was not just for them, was it? It was for every generation of Christians until Jesus returns to close this age. As we think about the church's existence, why are we here? Why does the church exist and why does Northridge Baptist Church exist? It definitely includes that purpose, that reason for existence, definitely includes carrying out these instructions. So as we consider as a church, the work ahead of us, we need to determine how to follow what Jesus told us to do. And this is very foundational. Uh, It's important to understand the basics, and this is one of the first passages we think of when we think about disciple-making, we call it the Great Commission. So we all need to be reminded of it, even if you're familiar with it, we need to be reminded of what Jesus said, and we all need to make sure we're committed to it. And as I shared last week, uh, the younger generation, so whatever whatever that is, whatever you would categorize as younger, um, there are young men and women here in your 20s, some in your teens, some younger than that, this is for you uh, because it's important that you have these goals in mind and these activities in your life and in your plans as well. So we're not going to cover this text exhaustively, phrase by phrase, but I am going to highlight some of the the phrases Jesus used and um, derive from basic principles, derive derive some basic principles from them for making disciples. So let's talk first of all about the core activity of disciple making. In fact, let's do this. Would somebody read for us uh, Matthew 28, 18? Let's just start in verse 18, 18 through 20 out loud, nice and clear and lift your voice for us so we can all hear who would like to do that for us. Read Matthew 28 verses 18 through 20. All right, Nathan's our volunteer today. Great. Thank you. Thanks very much. We know that making disciples includes going, as Jesus said here, and includes baptizing. Now, evangelism and disciple making really run together, don't they? They, they flow together. There's not a, a clear line of distinction between those two, because if we're making disciples, then that definitely involves evangelism, sharing the gospel with people. We're focusing on that on Wednesday nights, so I'm not going to really emphasize that here this morning, but but that's in the text, so we, we know that. Uh, baptizing includes giving the gospel, people believing the gospel, and then taking that first step of publicly identifying with Jesus Christ by being baptized. So, so we know that. Uh, I'm not going to get into that here this morning. But when a person believes the gospel and is saved and then baptized, what's next? Well, the The core activity of disciple-making here is teaching. Let's talk about that. That involves two components that I want to emphasize. One is instruction. So we're teaching the Word. We're explaining the Bible to people. We're encouraging them to live by the Word. And that's important for us to understand because I think we can... uh, Uh, set the bar very high for ourselves and maybe even feel discouraged or frustrated about disciple making. If you can sit down with another person and read a verse or a few verses of scripture and talk about what it means with them, you can disciple them. You You are engaging with the word of God. You are getting their focus on God's Word, and you're you're talking about the Scriptures, right? You may not feel like you are an educated, trained, experienced teacher. You wouldn't say, oh, I'm a teacher, so therefore I can teach the Word and make disciples. I'm telling you, I'm going to say pretty much everybody here knows a whole lot more about the Bible than most of the people you're going to run into in day-to-day life. You can. You may not be able to explain all the difficulties and intricacies of the Bible you may not feel like you have a grasp of all the theological elements of the Bible, but you can explain some simple verses of Scripture to somebody else. You could read through the Gospel of Mark with someone and say, let's let's look at what Jesus did. Let's look at what he said. Let's talk about what that means. You you can do that. So it can be that simple. I, I was thinking back to when I was really getting started in some of this, even as a pastor and when we were in uh, in Wisconsin and, this family came into our church, somebody else had invited them, and it was a very extremely uh, messy and complicated situation. The marriage was having problems, and the husband, um, was, he, he had a, I guess you'd call it a, a profession of salvation. He, he said that there was a time when he had trusted Christ as Savior. But he was enslaved to crack cocaine. I mean, he was just, just utterly compulsively addicted to crack cocaine. And he would go do well for a while, and then he'd be out there, and he'd end up at the crack house, and his wife wouldn't know where he was for days. I mean, he ended up committing adultery through, through all this scenario. And I'm a brand-new pastor. I'd been a youth pastor for a few years, and I'm a brand-new pastor I had never dealt with anything like that in my life. And I'm just thinking, what in the world do I do? They came to the church. They're asking for help, helping their family, helping their marriage. He needed help, and and he was open to help. And and I I learned a few counseling principles that helped with that. But you know what I did with with Mike? We would meet at, I think it was 6 o'clock. It was early. It was either 6 or 6.30. I think it was 6 in the morning at a McDonald's, halfway between where he lived and where I was. once a week. And I just had him read. We probably did Philippians or something like that. Just a simple uh, section of scripture and just read it and talk about it, read it and talk about it, read it and talk about it. And I definitely included some, you know, you call it some counseling in there, but mainly it was just exposing him to the word of God. And if somebody is a believer and if their heart is hungry and they want to they grow, just that interaction with the word is going to produce growth in their lives and he did and there was three steps forward two steps back and five steps back and then a few steps forward for a while but then ultimately uh, he had victory and he grew out of that and and one day i said mike you just need to move because he would go by these places and see these people just in his daily daily path of life i said you guys need to get out of milwaukee you need to get out of here and they did they moved about 100 miles away and and uh, he set up a mechanics um, shop. And, and as far as I know, they're, they're doing okay. They're doing well. I know they at least were then. So praise God, right? Glory to God. And, and God used his word and people and other elements in their lives. But I would attribute it to the work of the word of God in his life. And, and that was like raw discipleship with, with somebody who just needed to escape and be set free from bondage to sin and to grow in their Christian lives and their family. And the word of God did that. So, so that's the idea. It, it can be with an individual. It can be in a group. It can be a formal study. It can be meeting for coffee. Uh, but it, there's the element of instruction. Sure, there are, there are uh, resources. There are notebooks. There are, you know, courses of discipleship. But I just want to encourage you, it doesn't have to be complicated, and you don't have to be a theological professor um, to be able to do that. You just spend time in the Word with someone. And, and they're going to grow. But it also goes beyond that. If you've studied this idea of being a disciple, you know that it means more than just learning information. A disciple is a follower, and a disciplee, the, the concept of the term in in uh, the culture in which this was written, the concept of the term was more than just a student. It was someone who... who attached themselves like with velcro to their leader's life to the discipler's life so the disciplee was somebody who attached themselves to the discipler and and didn't just learn information but actually was impacted by that person's daily life and and that's important that's essential Because if we're thinking about making disciples, we have to realize it's more than just instruction. It's more than just passing on information, but it also involves influence. It's more than just head-to-head. It is definitely heart-to-heart, but it is also life-influencing life. Life Life-influencing life. Now, I'm going to ask you to go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, because... Paul is a great example of this, (coughs) and he described his influence in the lives of the people in Thessalonica in ways that help us understand what that can look like. So uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll read and comment through this passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1 starts out, For you yourselves know, brethren... Now, that's important, isn't it? He says, I'm not telling you something you don't already know. You know this. I'm telling you the truth. You experience this. That our coming to you was not in vain... But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So there's the preaching of the gospel. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Now, notice he's talking here about it about his inner motivation, not just his outward activity, but what was going on in his heart. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. In other words, he said, "We're not hucksters. We're not um, having a seminar and then selling you our materials. Here, take these, take this thirty-day plan, you know, for five hundred bucks." He said, "No, that's not what this was about." Nor did we seek glory from men either from you or from others, and we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. So, so what he's doing here is he's saying our motives were pure and they were evident to you. You know our motives coming into this. Well, How would they know his motives? Because they saw his heart. They saw his everyday life. They saw what he did and what he didn't do. So there was a closeness there. So, so his motives were evident to them. And then we see in verses 7 through 9, he truly cared about them. He says, But we were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, for you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, be preached to you the gospel of God. Does, it, does, does affection and love and care get any more intense than the care of a mother for her child? I mean, there is a, there is an, a, there's a connection, there's a, a love, there's a fierce loyalty and care and concern there that only a mother has for her child. He says that's the kind of care i had for you and again he's saying you you saw this you know this he says we we would not we didn't just give you the gospel we would give you our own lives this is a challenge for me as well as for all of us is there anyone that you would say that about anyone outside your family that you would say you know what I, I would just pour my life out for you doesn't matter what I get back doesn't matter what you do for me in return doesn't matter what it costs me I would do anything for you is there anybody like that in your life outside of your family maybe outside this church somebody who is far from God somebody who um, who is not not in the not in, in the inside group of believers, maybe somebody who is a new or a struggling Christian. I'm not claiming to be at that point. I would say we've shared with you a lot about some of our neighbors, and we were with them last night and had dinner and played a game, and at the end of the time I said, hey, do you guys want to start up our Bible study again? And they said, yeah. And I, I would say for at least some of them that they would probably do anything for me and I hope I would do anything for them. They'd be that kind of a neighbor, right? Where say, You know what, yeah, I, 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 you need help, I'm there. I would do just about anything for you. That's the kind of connection Paul had with, with these people. So so his, he truly cared about them. Um, his integrity would have, was evident to them. Look at verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So... He so said, you saw the consistency of our lives. We weren't just spouting words. We weren't just, just teaching a set of materials. He we said, we, we lived this. Our lives were consistent before you. We didn't have a dark side that you didn't know about. Then he was personally involved with them. Look at verses 11 and 12. As you know how we exhorted and comforted, and charged. Listen to those words. That didn't happen at a distance, did it? This was up close and personal. Every one of you has a father does his own children. Do you hear again the closeness? He says, I was like a dad sitting down with you saying, all right, guys, here's some things you need to hear. You need to understand this. These were close up conversations. And then verse 12 is the goal. In fact, verse 12 describes discipleship. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's discipleship right there, isn't it? So yeah, he shared the gospel, but he, he moved toward them. He lived among them. They knew him. He talked to them. He spent time with them. He cared for them. He was consistent in his conduct before them and his life touched theirs and that became the pathway, the avenue for teaching them the truth, and that truth changed them forever. That—that's what. Um, but ver- sorry, lost it. Verse twelve. That's what verse twelve describes. He—he impacted their lives forever. God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. See where it ends up—the glory of God, the kingdom of God. So His impact on them was eternal. But it was through that closeness and that connection. <laughs> As I was preparing this, I thought of something and I actually had to go back and watch it myself because I'd never seen it. I'd heard about it. I'd never seen it. I thought, if I'm going to talk about it, I need to at least know what I'm talking about. Have any of you heard of the Gospel Blimp? In 1967, who was alive in 1967? I was four years old. Anybody? Okay, all right, three or four of you. So, so, so some, some group, some Christian organization produced a movie a film whatever you call it back then in 1967 called the gospel blimp and it it was it was dramatized it was this group of christians and they're sitting together in somebody's backyard and and there's a neighbor sitting next to them in their backyard and they're out there drinking and you know whatever and these christians together say we we should try to reach our community for the gospel and they dream up this, this plan, and they decide to, to purchase or whatever, rent, hire a blimp, you know, one of those huge balloons that travel through the sky, like the Goodyear blimp. And then they would use that to publicize the gospel the community. And they, they trailed banners behind it, like you see airplanes pulling, you know, advertising, banners, trailed, repent or perish, you know, um, that kind of thing they they made these little i think they called them fire bombs or something but they were like wrapped like tootsie rolls with gospel tracks and they rained those down you know on the community and they landed in people's hair and landed in people's beer and landed all this stuff and and it just annoyed everybody then they started using a loudspeaker and they played music and all this stuff and just basically annoyed everybody meanwhile the uh, the neighbors who had hosted that little get-together decided not to participate in all the planning and the financing and the work involved in, in making this gospel blimp thing happen and so so they they ended up um, they went they went to the beach with their neighbors they, uh, the, the wife was sick in the hospital and so they went to visit her and and the, the, the Christian wife spent time at the hospital with the unbelieving wife and just showed care for her and through that in the story um that, that they get saved the neighbors get saved right and uh, it's funny how it ends so so the, the 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 christians get together at the original person's house and those newly saved neighbors are there and they say hey our neighbor's going to tell you about getting saved and the neighbors share all this and how it happened and obviously it happened through the the relationship of the neighbors not dropping gospel bombs on people right from a distance, and so the the main guy in the um, uh, the plan for the blimp says to the newly saved neighbor, "Hey, you want to come help us with our blimp?" <laughs> and the newly saved neighbor says, uh, "I don't think so. Uh, we're going. We meaning the the original Christian neighbors and then the newly saved neighbors. We're we're going bowling with our neighbor across the street. So obviously, they had caught the idea of building a relationship with those individuals. So." Is it wrong to, to do drive-by evangelization or we hand a tract or we do something brief or it happens more to distance or to broadcast over radio, internet, whatever? Absolutely not. But what we find here is also a model of connecting with people, isn't it? Not only evangelism, but continuing on into disciple-making. That's what Paul did. So yes, it is instruction, but it's more than that. It is also influence. All right, so let's go back to Matthew 18. And we also see from this text the target, the target people, if you want to call it that. Not targets for dropping our gospel bombs, right? But target people for disciple-making, And uh, so he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And then verse 20, where we're focusing, teaching them. So so this disciple-making is targeted toward them. That's referring to all the nations in verse 19. So that's broad, isn't it? That's global. And that is in contrast to what these men themselves were. They were the, the Jews. They were God's chosen people. Jesus is saying, all right, you've got to push this out. It doesn't just mean all around the world. It means to every kind of people, beyond yourselves, beyond your group. And another place we see this, if you'd like to look at it, is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So right before Jesus' ascension, Acts 1.8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again, we're talking here about evangelism, but again, there's not a fine line. It certainly includes disciple-making. And there's kind of a traditional way of understanding this. So we might say that, that Jerusalem was their close community, their immediate Community, the people right around you, all Judea—that would be the the region within that uh, Roman province of Judea, so the surrounding area. What was significant about Samaria? Somebody want to tell me? Tell us what was significant about Samaria. So when Jesus said, "And to Samaria," what reaction? What response might that get? Gabriel? exactly yeah so so this would be the undesirables this would be the people who are not only different but uh there would be kind of a stigma or uh, an aversion to engaging with these people interacting with them so i would just call it across cultural boundaries maybe that's not even strong enough so it definitely includes that across cultural boundaries but unpleasant, we might say, cultural boundaries. Um, the kind that, that would be uh, not welcoming, not comfortable for us to cross, for us to engage with. But then it does also include global impact because he did say, to the end of the earth. Now, you know what's interesting? When, when Jesus said this to his disciples and he said the end of the earth, that's actually where we are to them, isn't it? It's like the other side of the world. As far as you can go from where you are is the idea. So, so that would be, but we're, we are in, in that realm, we might say. So, so we are recipients of that over time. But we can certainly make an application and say for us, well, yes, we should be having a global impact as well in our gospel outreach, but also in our disciple-making. And I think it's good for us to think in terms of each of these. Our close community, our surrounding area, across cultural boundaries, and then having a global impact not only in evangelism, but also in making disciples. And ask ourselves, and I'm not looking for answers or trying to provide answers here this morning, but here's some things for us to all be thinking about and praying about. How can we prepare to do this? How can we prepare to make disciples in Highland Park? How can we prepare to make disciples beyond that, in our surrounding area, whatever you want to call that, Greater Des Moines? And are there cultural boundaries and some unpleasant ones, some that we might struggle with, engaging with that we need to think about okay how can we prepare ourselves to reach across those to move across those and then extending that out to global impact as well are there ways we need to adjust our attitudes are there ways we should think about our facilities our website being very practical are there needs in our community that we should be familiar with? I, I heard this somewhere. I don't remember where. But the idea that, that a church should find out what the questions are of people in their community. About God, about life. And then figure out how to, how to connect with those. And that, again, that would include evangelism, but also sharing the word, teaching people. So what, what needs in our community do we need to become familiar with in order to help people to learn and live the Word and to follow Christ? And I think another way to think about it is this. I'm going to use the word initiatives, strategic initiatives. Are there any strategic initiatives, any, any plan that we should have, any organized effort We should be thinking about and praying about and developing to engage people in these ways as disciples. Uh, Back in June, Faith and I um, were at a conference. It was a nationwide conference of fundamental Baptists, and um, we were there representing Faith Baptist Bible College with a display and of that, and and actually there are a lot of people there that we've known from kind of our past life before we moved to Iowa, and uh, so we we met and caught up with a good many friends in ministry, and there was uh, a man there who is on the staff of the church where I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis in the 1990s, so we lived in Indianapolis from 1990 to 1994, and I was a youth pastor there. We were in ministry there. And there was a man on the staff then. And uh, he, was, he was over, at that time it was printing. So printing all the materials the church used. And then it developed into overseeing website and all the graphics. So that's his specialty. But, but he, goes, he goes beyond that as far as his ministry. He has a, a personal ministry in the church as well. And over the past few years, he has been overseeing a special ministry of that church. So so this church, you might classify it as being in kind of a a nice suburban area. Um, And uh, I mean, it draws all kinds of people from all over, but that's the location of the church. Beautiful facility, very nice auditorium. Everything's just just done beautifully. Um, And like here, people are immigrating into the United States and they're locating in some of these metropolitan areas and like here there is a large population of African immigrants new fairly newly immigrated from from countries in Africa to Indianapolis and somehow the church has gotten connected with some of these people and they have actually developed a class I'm going to say it's probably about the size of this group based on some pictures I've seen of African immigrants who meet in a class in their church, and they have Bible study. And then I think they have their own worship sometimes in languages and in a format that, that they're familiar with. But then sometimes they join together with the the church as well. Out of that, this man, Dan Elkins, has developed a ministry called Next Door Nations, next door nations. And he handed me some materials, and I haven't followed up on it yet. The idea is that where are the nations? Where where are the the nations? They're right here, aren't they? They're next door, and that's true here in Des Moines. There there are people from nations around the world, and there are pockets of immigrants right, right out here. And we know there's an African grocery store a couple doors down. So. Next Door Nations is is a a strategy and an initiative and a plan to engage with these people and to make disciples of them. I'm just throwing that out there, something to think about, something to pray about, uh, something that possibly could be introduced at some time in the future. Uh, I just spoke on the phone with a pastor in Michigan on Friday. Uh, Faith and I are going to be with him and his church in September. Uh, speaking there for a weekend, and I just catching up. How's it going? What are you doing? And he said, I just got off the phone, and he named the director of a a ministry. It's called Freedom That Lasts. In fact, Faith and I know the founder of it, Um, and it's a ministry of disciple-making for people who are addicted to all kinds of stuff, right? Drugs, alcohol, pornography, all kinds of stuff. And he said, we're we're starting a chapter here in our church. And he lives in a a fairly small rural community in Michigan. He said, we have a major problem with with drugs and alcohol, and we want to connect with these people. So they're starting a freedom that lasts ministry. Again, another example of thinking in terms of, okay, what, what can this look like? And how do we connect with that close community, the surrounding area, cross some cultural boundaries, and ultimately have global impact as well? things to think about, things to pray about. We also see in Matthew 28 the resource material for disciple-making, the resource material, and that is, as he says, uh, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. What does this include? A few thoughts here. One is the content of Scripture, as we've talked about. Absolutely. What what does the Bible contain? What are the basic truths of who Jesus is and what the Word of God is about and what the Christian life looks like and how do you live that for sure? I also want to emphasize that the resource material that we use for disciple-making arises from truth. It arises from the clear Fundamental truths of God's Word, and we have to be careful that we don't add to that our own ideas, our own applications, or we might call them man made regulations. Man made regulation. I want to show you something. Look with me at Matthew 15. Matthew 15. So these scribes and Pharisees are challenging Jesus. Um, There were long ceremonies for how they washed their hands to try to keep from being defiled when they ate. These ceremonies were added to what the scripture required. And uh, they judged other people based on whether or not they followed these intricate ceremonies. So so they say in verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Notice what they say. Not the command of God, but the tradition of the elders. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And they meant according to this prescribed ceremony. He answered and said to them. So now he turns it back on them. Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And he gives, gives an example of that there in another way that they, they broke one of the commandments by how they followed their own tradition. Look at what he says down in, uh, in verse 8. He says, These people draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, their heart is far from me, in vain do they worship me. And here's what I want to emphasize. This is where we have to be on guard. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, if you're a Christian, you've lived for a good number of years according to principles of God's Word, you've developed some conclusions you've arrived at some conclusions you've made some decisions you have possibly constructed in your life some guardrails for staying on that path of doing God's will maybe you have developed some prohibitions for yourself you say well i want to obey what god's word says so in order to make sure i do this i'm not going to do that and what can happen is that over time we can start to view those self-imposed restrictions, prohibitions, or positive practices that we've instituted into our lives or our families to make sure we're doing what God's Word does say, that we begin to view those, those restrictions or those requirements as equal to the commands of God. And we view not only ourselves, but also we can fall into the trap of viewing other people and their practices accordingly. In our minds, we can start to think, okay, for you to obey God's commands, you must do this. For you to obey God's commands, you cannot do that. I'm going to give you one example, maybe two, to help you understand what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't know where you are on this. I don't know if this is an issue with you or not. It used to be more of a major issue among Christians, especially conservative Christians. Now it's not so much, but it may be for you. So I'm not trying to pick on what you think about this, okay, but just use it as an example. So I know that for a time in some conservative homes and churches, attending a movie theater was taboo, all right, for various reasons. Because of the content of the movies, don't want to expose myself to what's in those movies. And because, another reason might be more of an indirect approach, we don't want to financially support or give promotion to what's what the producers of those movies do, right? Because a lot of it, maybe most of it, is ungodly. An additional reason might be, well, if somebody sees me going in that theater, they don't know if I'm going to see the movie rated G or the movie rated R, and so it could affect how people view me and my reputation or my testimony for Christ. Okay, so that would be, how many of you are familiar with that thinking? You, you've heard it, you're familiar with, okay, all right. And that is absolutely acceptable, and, and a Christian can make those, uh, have those requirements and make those restrictions in their life or for their family and say, we're not going to attend a movie theater, and these are the reasons, absolutely fine, right? But the Bible doesn't prohibit that, so, so you could say, well, I'm taking these principles of the Bible and I'm applying them to my life or for my family, so we're going to follow these. The danger is in making your applications equivalent to the commands of God and saying, I am right, I'm doing right because I do this, or if I don't follow that, I'm doing wrong or I'm sinning. And if you attend a movie theater, you're sinning, right? Pointing that out to somebody else, passing a judgment on somebody else. Does that make sense? All right. I'll use another one. And, again, this one gets into a little issue that uh, that that can get complicated. Uh, the Bible very clearly warns very strongly about the dangers of drinking alcohol. Do you agree with that? Okay. Okay. Uh, In my understanding, I would say that there's not a direct prohibition for a person to ever drink alcohol. There are a whole lot of warnings, and that would be my position, is it's not necessary, and it's not wise, and it's dangerous to engage in that. But on the other hand, I have to be careful not to say that there is a prohibition against that in the Bible. Now again, we have different ideas, different views on that, very likely in this room. But, but the point is this, right? Here's the illustration. So uh, let's say that a person decides, well, not only am I not gonna drink, but I'm not going to support a business that sells alcohol because of all the destruction and everything that goes with that of alcohol. So I'm not gonna eat in a restaurant that serves alcohol, and I'm not gonna shop at a store that sells alcohol. Okay, so that could be someone's decision. And I've known people that, that made that choice. The Bible does not restrict us from eating in a place or shopping at a store that, that provides alcohol, but a person could make that decision for themselves. The danger comes in elevating that conclusion or that decision to the level of a command of God, right? And saying, I'm right if I do it, I'm sinning if I don't, and you're right if you do it, and if you don't follow this requirement, or this restriction, then you are committing sin. That's where the danger comes. Okay, is that making sense? Is my explanation, my my um, my disclaimers, my all of that making sense to you? Okay, understand. So th- those are some illustrations. Now, I actually taught some of this at uh, a church where I pastored in South Carolina. I taught a series called "Renewing Biblical Christianity." That's the whole idea of. Um, uh, not, just, not just practicing and not just passing on to the next generation our conclusions, our decisions, our applications, but making sure that we pass on, as Jesus emphasizes here in Matthew 15 and in the Great Commission, what God's Word actually tells us. So I'm just going to put this up here now, explain it, and not go much further with it, but I may refer back to it at a later time, just in our teaching and discussions that we have So, um, and by the way, I'm sure these are not perfectly shaped circles, I did the best I could not being a graphic designer or an engineer with special software, all right. So the core circle with the letter T stands for truth, truth. Truth is what's right. You can define truth as what is real and what is right, okay? God created the world by speaking and it all came into existence. That's truth, isn't it? That's that's real. That's reality. Um, God says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's reality, but it's also right. It's right. So it's true because it's real because it's right. That's truth. And that's what we find in the pages of Scripture. We find truth. We find stories that describe, true stories that describe truth. We find uh, quotations from God himself that tell us what is true, what's real and what's right. We find the words of, of his messengers and the Holy Spirit inspired them to speak truth. What's real and what's right. We we have Jesus Christ, truth embodied. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, what Jesus said and how he lived demonstrates truth for us. We have the epistles that explain truth, on and on, right? The Bible contains truth. That's what's real and what's right. The next level, the U, represents understanding. Understanding. So we all have the responsibility to understand truth. Some of it is easily understandable. You shall not kill. That's easily understandable. But we also know that there are statements in Scripture. There are uh, different components that you try to reconcile and resolve you know, there's one God in three persons, for example. Jesus is the God-man, holy God and holy man, things like that. So, so some, some we can understand pretty clearly and readily. You can understand them. Others are more complicated. Others are extremely complex, we would say. But that's what we do. We understand the word with the Holy Spirit's help, the mind God gave us, the, the combined uh, wisdom of people from over the ages and people in our lives, teachers, on and on. That there, there is a level to which we can all understand the truth of God's word. So we take that truth and we understand it, and then the last circle represents application, application. So there's truth, we understand truth, and then we make applications of that truth. Here's an example: Is it true that? Jesus will return. Okay, we'd all agree with that, right? Jesus will return. Bodily, uh, initially in the air for the rapture, and then into the earth to set up his kingdom, and then we get into all the complexities of, of the end times, right? But we would say Jesus will return. Now, some, I think, and probably most of you think, if you've thought about it, would say Jesus is going to return before what's called the seven years of tribulation, okay? That's how we understand. There's not a statement in the Bible that says that, but that's how we understand the different components about Jesus' return. So we would say, okay, we, we have a, an understanding. Some people understand it differently, the timing. There was a family in our church in South Carolina, dear family, love God. They believe that Jesus would come halfway through the tribulation, seven-year tribulation. That was their belief, okay? Great Christians, godly people, sweet people. That was their belief. We had a different understanding of the timing of the rapture, right? Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, now, application. Should we live as if Jesus could return at any time? Should we live in a way that shows that we value what's going to happen after Christ returns and we're in eternity? Should we live for eternity? We would all say yes. Now, there may be some specific ways that you and your family make that application. Some people might make an application one way, some make an application another way, some a different way. The reality is we have to be careful about elevating our applications to the level of the commands of God, or to think about it the other way, equating our applications with truth. Now, in in a church like this, or as God grows this church, as we make disciples of people, what are we teaching them? Truth. Understanding truth. Yes, helping people make applications, but being careful not to teach the traditions of the elders, as it were, our applications, our ways of requirements and restrictions, and say, this is what you do, and you have to do this. You have to apply it this way if you're going to grow, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be godly, if you're going to be spiritual. Now, we might suggest, we might encourage, we might advise, but we have to be careful about not equating those applications with truth. I'm just going to stop there, with stop on that topic for now. We may circle back to that, kind of laying some foundation uh, for what we may talk about in the days ahead. And by the way, this is In the Baptist acrostic, this is known as what's the P stand for? What is it? Priesthood of the believer. And what's the S? What's one of the S's stand for? Soul, soul liberty. Priesthood of the believer and soul liberty means that you, as an individual believer, have the right and the prerogative and the responsibility to make some of these choices for yourself. Okay? And, I'll add one more, people can live and function in the same church family with some variation in those applications. All right, so we'll, we'll circle back on that some other time. Okay, so then number four, the, uh, oh, okay, truth versus man relation, and then following Christ. Um, so Jesus said back in Matthew 28, um, observe all things that I have commanded you. I have commanded you. So it all focuses back to Christ. Being a disciple is being a follower of Christ. Making a disciple is helping someone follow Christ. Not me, not just a church, not an organization, not a set of materials or ideas, but ultimately it's about Christ, isn't it? Following him. It's important to keep that in mind. The stated objective of disciple making is to observe. He says, teaching them to observe. So not just teaching them, period, not just making sure they can fill in the blanks, answer the questions correctly, but teaching them to observe. The word observe means to attend to carefully. It's more than to just know it factually. I'll describe this in two ways. First of all, with the word ownership. In other words, to take ownership. People need to own the truths of God's word. They need to own them to grasp them, to arrive at that clear understanding, right, the truth, and then the next circle, understanding of them, and truly adopt them as their own way of thinking and living. So observing, giving attention to, means taking ownership. This is mine. I understand it. I grasp it. This is my own. And then it also involves change, change. A disciple is a follower following someone else, means change in your life. You know, what popped into my head. <laughs> I visited my mom yesterday. She, uh, my mom is, I've shared a little bit with you. She's, she'll be hundred years old in November. And uh, she is at the Mill Pond Care Center, beautiful facility there in Ankeny. And I went to visit her yesterday and, and I took her in her special wheelchair outside and uh, around by the beautiful pond area. And there was a mother duck, and I thought this happened earlier in the year, but maybe there's a second cycle. Uh, some ducklings with her. There were three of them. They were medium-sized, maybe about that big, but they were they were still pretty small. And that brown, I guess a mallard, female mallard, brown mother duck was moving from one pond to another across the grassy area. And she's moving along, and those those three were just like like their little steps right behind her. She's going like this, and they're just like all three of them kind of all together just right tucked in right behind her. I mean, they were following her, right? They were right right on track with her. That, that's this. And whatever little direction, change of direction she would make, I mean, they're just its almost like one unit. You know, they're just moving right with her. And, and that's the idea, following Christ. And it includes change disciples are engaged in a process of change and that can be radical at first like like mike right coming out of addiction and terrible family situation all of that the changes may be radical at first but then they become gradual over a lifetime this process of change growing in understanding of truth and living out likeness and doing his will So disciple-making is not merely teaching or instructing. It is influencing others. It happens through relationships, over time, by means of biblical truth. As you follow Christ and you influence others to follow Christ as well. I've I've used a a resource in my own study as well as teaching on this. And I just recommend it to you. I'm not going to necessarily teach through it here. But uh, if you'd like to do some reading on your own, it's called Discipling, How to Help Others Follow Jesus by Pastor Mark Dever. Very helpful. It it cleared up some, I think, misconceptions and some fears in my own mind about discipling others. Brought some things into more sharp focus for me. But I, I appreciate his definition of what it means to make disciples. Deliberate doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Christ. Doing deliberate spiritual good to help others follow Christ. Now, it may be a formal Bible study. It may be a conversation between Sunday school and church. One sentence, a word of encouragement, asking and answering a question, right? It can be very informal, very formal. It can be one person. It can be three people. It could be taking somebody with you on an errand or to an activity. So many things, so many settings, but it's doing deliberate spiritual good. I want to bless them. I just want to influence them toward following Christ. All of us can do that. All of us can do that. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for teaching us today yourself. Thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit here in this morning. We've talked about it a lot. So I pray that uh, these truths and how we should be shaped by them would not be left behind, but they'd be imprinted on our minds and hearts, and that they would be uh, sources of growth and building the life of this church and individual members of this church and the future of this church going forward, we pray. We ask your blessing as we go. We honor you, may our lives honor you, may our love for one another continue. We look forward to being together again. In Jesus' name, amen.